0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on August 8th, Lord's Day Service. To which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the God who searches hearts. This morning, may your Spirit apply your word to our hearts. Search us out and draw us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you paid attention to what we just read, then you know that we just read the passage about the unforgivable sin. And so that means our primary focus this morning is to understand exactly what is the unforgivable sin. And so to help us answer that question, we're going to look back at the text and make three observations. And observation number one is to notice the context. So look with me at verse 22, the beginning of this passage, and notice the context. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And so you see here in verse 22 that the scribes say that Jesus' power to cast out demons comes from Satan. In other words, they are attributing to Satan what is in fact the work of the Spirit. And in so doing, they speak not out of ignorance, but out of what G.K. Burkauer calls a conscious disputing of the indisputable. That is, they are so biased against Jesus. They are so filled with resentment against Jesus. They are so filled with bitterness and envy and hatred towards Jesus. That when they see Jesus go around with all this authority and doing these supernatural things, and they try to understand how is it that this man does these things, they cleave to the explanation that he must be operating on the power of demons. Mark, the author carefully crafts this section in such a way as to show us that Jesus' teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, his teaching on the the unforgivable sin, comes in response to the scribes. It comes in response to these teachers of the law. And notice how Mark bookends this section with the scribes. He begins the section in verse 22. He says, and the scribes who came down to Jerusalem were saying, And then notice how he ends this section in verse 30. It says, "For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit." Well, who's the they? Well, the is the scribes. So that means the entire teaching about the unforgivable sin it begins with the scribes and their charge against Jesus, and then it ends with the scribes. And so that shows us that the context of this teaching is that Jesus is speaking directly to the scribes. And so Jesus is not just responding to some random charge against him. Jesus is not just responding to the claim that, you know, he's demon-possessed and he cast out demons by the power of demons. No, he's not just responding to an argument. He's not just responding to an abstract intellectual argument. In fact, when it comes to Jesus, there really is no such thing as an abstract intellectual argument. You've noticed Jesus makes things personal. So you either believe in the Son or you reject the Son. And so it's always personal when you're talking about Jesus. And so Jesus here isn't just responding to an argument. He's not just responding to an abstract intellectual argument. So then what is he responding to? Well, look at verse 23. It says, He called them to him. And said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? He called them to him. That is, he called the scribes to him. So the context is, the scribes make this charge against Jesus, and then Jesus says, hey, you scribe, come here. I've got something to say to you in parables. And so the charge comes from the scribes, and then Jesus' response is directly to the scribe. And so, remember, Jesus doesn't respond to just merely abstract intellectual arguments. It's a personal thing with those scribes. It's a heart thing for those scribes. So then what do the scribes' accusations say about their heart? Well, in their hearts, in the depths of their soul, they are set against Jesus. They are rejecting Jesus on the deepest of spiritual levels. And so, Jesus is responding to their charge that by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. But more than that, he is peeling back the many layers of their antipathy towards Jesus. And remember what we're doing. We're trying to establish the context. And so this means that Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sin is meant to be applied directly to the hearts of the scribes. And it means Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sins is meant to be applied directly to the hearts of those who share the iron-handed hostility towards Jesus that the scribes display. And so, as we try to understand what is the unforgivable sin, our first observation is this context. Our second observation is the parables. In order to demonstrate that the accusation is false, Jesus uses two little parables. The first parable is verses 23 through 26, and the second parable is verse 27. So let's look at those two parables. The first parable, beginning in verse 23, says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that the accusation that they leveled in verse 22 is absurd, He's simply forcing them to consider the foolishness of their accusation. Jesus is saying, wait, wait, if I cast out demons by demonic power, then that means Satan is working against himself. And if Satan is working against himself, how could Satan even stand? On its face, it seems like a silly claim that the scribes are making. And so Jesus' point in this first little parable is to simply point out that their accusation is absurd. It's ridiculous, it's illogical, and it is foolish. And that takes us then to the second little parable that Jesus says. And it really begins at the end of verse 26. He says at the end of verse 26, but Satan is coming to an end. And then you think, well, how is Satan coming to an end? Then verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so verse 27... Second little parable. And the second little parable is meant to explain how it is that Satan is coming to an end. And so then, how does verse 27 explain that Satan is coming to an end? Well, we've already seen he's not coming to an end because his house is divided against himself. Satan, rather, is coming to an end because a stronger man binds him. So look at it. Verse 27. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So who is the strong man? Well, the strong man is Satan. And in this little parable, what happens to the strong man? Well, he is bound. So Jesus is saying in this little parable that Satan is bound. And remember, Satan is strong. So then, who binds Satan? Well, the only person that can bind a strong man is a stronger man. And so whoever binds Satan, in this little parable in verse 27, must be stronger than Satan. So listen to verse 27 again with that meaning supplied. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house, that is, no one can enter Satan's house, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That is, unless he first binds Satan. And so the strong man in the little parable is Satan. And the stronger one who binds the strong man is Jesus. And so Jesus has just progressed the argument of the first parable. In the first parable, Jesus says, well, if the exorcisms can't be attributed to Satan, because that's absurd, then the second parable, casting demons must come from a greater authority than that of Satan. And so we're trying to figure out what exactly is the unforgivable sin. So we've seen first observation, the context. He's, He's directing his teaching directly to the question and the heart of the scribes. The second observation are these two little parables. The third observation is the distinction. Notice the distinction that Jesus makes in verses 28 and 29. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So notice the distinction. What sin can be forgiven? Well, he outlines this in verse 28. The sin that can be forgiven is blasphemies they utter. That's the phrase at the end of verse 28. It says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So that sin can be forgiven. Of course, that raises the question, what blasphemies is he referring to? Can you be more specific? And actually, we know from parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12 that the blasphemies they utter is specifically referring to speaking a word against the Son of Man. In other words, in the Matthew 12 passage about the unforgivable sin, it defines that more specifically and talks about this is blasphemy against the Son of Man. So that means in verse 28 saying the sin that can be forgiven is blasphemy against the Son of Man. Blasphemy against Jesus can be forgiven. But what sin will not be forgiven? Verse 29, this is where he says, blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So we've got this distinction. And the distinction is that blasphemies against the Son of God, blasphemies against Jesus will be forgiven or can be forgiven, but blasphemies against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So we see the distinction. But then the question is, wait, why? Why is it the case that a blasphemy against Jesus can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit can't be forgiven? Why this distinction? Well, the distinction between blasphemy against the Son of Man and blasphemy against the Spirit, it's not that the Son is more important than the Spirit. Instead, when you place all of this back into the context of the dispute with the Pharisees, Rejecting the Son is basically rejecting the gospel. But there's repentance and forgiveness for that, right? I mean, just think about it. If someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means they previously rejected it. And so, so we all know there's forgiveness for the sin of rejecting the Son. But rejecting the Spirit, the unforgivable sin is of a progressively darker quality. Blasphemy against the Spirit is a rejection of the gospel, but it is also an obstinate and stubborn refusal to acknowledge Jesus, even after seeing the truth of Jesus with your own eyes. Don't forget the context. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees directly when he says this. Excuse me, to the scribes. The scribes make their charge. Jesus points to the scribes, says, come here. And then he tells them these two parables, and then he makes this distinction in verses 28 and 29. He's applying this blasphemy against the Spirit directly to the heart of the scribes. Because the scribes, now for three chapters, have been following Jesus around. They've been witnessing Jesus' authority. That's the entire point of Mark chapter 1 and 2. It's to establish the authority of the Son of Man. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to teach. He has authority to heal people and to cast out demons. And we even saw in an earlier passage that the scribes dispatched spies to on Jesus. So they have been watching every move of Jesus. They've been seeing Jesus's authority on display with their own eyes. They have seen the truth with their own eyes. And when it comes to explaining how this man is doing all these supernatural things, they conclude, well, it must be Satan doing it. Satan must be casting out these demons. And so, this blasphemy against the Spirit is of a progressively darker quality than just rejecting the Son. It's this obstinate, stubborn refusal to acknowledge the truth of Jesus even after you see it with your own eyes. It's rejecting the Gospel in full awareness. It's this thoughtful, willful, self-conscious rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the so-called unforgivable sin, this particular form of blasphemy is willfully misunderstanding and brandishing as devilish what in fact comes from the Spirit of God. With your own eyes, you see the truth of God. With your own eyes, you see the work of the Holy Spirit so clearly that you cannot miss it. But then, to explain it, you ascribe those works, not to the Holy Spirit, but to the devil. And this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, is probably what's in view in the Hebrews 6 passage, that really confusing passage, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It's probably talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's also the teaching that's probably in the background of that confusion passage in Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is probably also in view in that confusing passage in 1 John 5, 16. And when you read those passages with this explanation that Jesus gives about the unforgivable sin, it really does make those very difficult passages come to light. And so with that explanation of the unforgivable sin, this blasphemy against the Spirit... We need to ask a clarifying question. What about unbelievers who reject God in ignorance? And to that we must say there is still hope for unbelievers who reject God in ignorance. You see, the unforgivable sin, this blasphemy against the Spirit, is when someone sins against the Holy Spirit with evil intention, resisting God's truth, even though they have seen the truth, even though they have seen its brightness, even though they have been so touched by it that they cannot claim ignorance. And this simply does not describe the -the run-of-the-mill unbeliever. Those who unconsciously attack God's truth... Still have the possibility of forgiveness. Those who ignorantly curse Christ still have the possibility of forgiveness. Those who have not yet tasted the heavenly gift of Christ still have the possibility of forgiveness. Now, often Christians will read this passage about the unforgivable sin. And they will walk away worried that they have committed or will commit the unforgivable sin and thereby be irredeemably doomed. And so to you who are prone to such worry, let me be clear that the unforgivable sin is not an isolated act done accidentally. As we've seen, this is a settled condition of the soul, usually the result of a long history of repeated and willful Blasphemy of the one true God. You simply cannot accidentally commit the unforgivable sin. And so with that clarifying question, let us now move to a concluding application. Why is this teaching important today? Well, there's a lot of reasons this is important today. We're going to touch on just one. In our time, there are those evangelical Christians who like to make claims about certain sins, and they like to talk about certain sins as if they are unforgivable. For example, in recent years, we've been told by some evangelical Christians that racism is the new unforgivable sin. And so today, there are many Christian leaders and pastors who are saying that if you don't toe the line of their brand new racial message, regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of who you've been in the past, if you don't perform these new works they've put in front of you, you may not be saved. Bodie Bauckham has talked about this extensively in many sermons and in his most recent book. And so there's these evangelical Christians going around presenting their new definition, of racism as if it's the new unforgivable sin. And basically saying, if you don't make a statement supporting Black Lives Matter, you may be outside the family of God because you're so racist. You might be outside the grace of God. If you slip up on this issue and you quote the wrong person, if you come down on the wrong side of the issue, then all of a sudden, you know, your identity in Christ may not matter. And so racism is now talked about, Bodie Bauckham has said, it's now talked about as if it's the new unforgivable sin. And what's interesting here is they're not even talking about actual racism. They have just kind of invented this new definition of racism based on the social scientist. The actual definition of racism is... Well, think of what racism is. Racism is the sin of thinking more highly of yourself and your race than you ought, and then looking down on other people other races. So that means the, the actual sin of racism is two sins. It's the sin of pride, thinking more highly of yourself and your race, and then it's the sin of hate, because you're looking down upon another. So the actual sin of racism is pride and hate all in one. That's what actual racism is. But to hear some of these evangelical pastors talk they're not even talking about actual racism they're talking about this new definition of racism and presenting it as if it's the unpardonable sin and the new definition of racism says you know if you don't post an approved message on social media you're probably a racist if you don't attend the right protest you're a racist And if you read Thomas Sowell, if you admire Clarence Thomas, and you listen to Votie Bauckham, you're probably a racist because they're not the right kind of black people. And so, as it's presented in the last couple of years, there is no forgiveness if you violate the new sin of racism, this new unforgivable sin. It doesn't matter how much white people grovel. It doesn't matter how much you protest. It doesn't matter how much money you donate to Black Lives Matter. The next time something racist happens, whether it's real or perceived, doesn't matter. The next time something racist happens, white people have to grovel, protest, and donate money to Black Lives Matter all over again. Why? Because white guilt is the new unpardonable sin. You cannot be forgiven. White guilt is this idea that there is inherent guiltiness that comes just from the fact that you are white. And so there's no salvation from white guilt. All you can do is do the works they've told you to perform and try to convince people that you understand how guilty you are for being white. And even then, though, remember, you're not forgiven. You're just acknowledging you're guilty, which puts you a step up from the white person who doesn't acknowledge that they're guilty. And so, according to the logic of so-called social justice, when a white person declares his guilt, when they go out and confess, all right, I have white privilege, I confess, it's a horrible sin, I confess, forgive me, forgive me. Even then, there's still statistical differences between white and blacks and culture, and that's why you can't be forgiven, according to their logic. And so, according to their logic, you're still guilty, there is no forgiveness. And so white Christians who have been sitting in churches listening to this over the last couple of years, white Christians now are racked with guilt over being white. And if they're truly guilty about this, they're doing as many so-called social justice works as they can try to do, and so they can be saved. And so they're constantly having to be servile, constantly ashamed. And so Brody's called it white guilt legalism. And with the rise of social justice legalism has come a rise in anxiety about their salvation among professing Christians. And so, as we make this closing application, we want to be very, very clear about what sin in the Bible is actually unforgivable. And we want to be very, very clear that sin is only sin when God says so in the Bible, and God doesn't have to be cited by the appropriate social scientist for it to be sin. We want to be very clear that the unforgivable sin is what Jesus said it is, as we just saw in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. We want to be very clear that being white is not a sin, and being white is not the unforgivable sin. And we want to be very clear that to say or imply that actual racism or a false definition of racism is beyond the power of God's grace and is beyond the power of forgiveness, that is to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. If your great-great-great-grandfather owned sin, or slaves, or if your great-great-great-grandfather might have owned slaves, that is not a sin that you need to seek forgiveness for. Now, we also want to be clear that if you have harbored actual racist thoughts in your heart, if you have said actual racist things in your life, if you have done actual racist things in your life, then I want you to listen very, very clearly. When you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, your sins are done away with forever. They are forgotten forever. The penalty has been paid, and you do not have to continually grovel at the feet of God to earn his forgiveness. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, you know our sins, and we know that our sins bring us nothing but misery. And so what shall we do? Where shall we go? Well, as sure as your promise is true, because of what Christ Jesus has done on the cross, by faith in Christ Jesus, we have pardon and mercy. And so, Father, we renounce our sins and we glory in your grace and we accept the offer of your mercy and your forgiveness that has put our sin away once and for all. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at Trinity Reformed That's Trinity Reformed